Do you know that we have a free Childhood Cancer Facebook community and a free mental health professionals network group? Make sure to join through the links in the summary. If you haven't taken our PTSD after cancer quiz, make sure to check out the links below. Get added to our list to receive free resources to help you heal from the impact of childhood cancer. Be the first to know and we will offer EMDR intensives and support groups for teens, parents, and adult survivors of childhood cancer. Hi, and welcome to today's episode. Before we jump right in, I wanted to just to quickly come in and say hi, I'm Adriana. And if you could please hit subscribe to this podcast, if you have listened to my other ones, and you've enjoyed some of the resources that I put out there. And if you could also kindly rate this podcast, I would love a five star review, but you know, you rate it as you feel I have earned. So if you could please Subscribe and submit a review and share this with anyone that you feel would benefit from Family Chemotherapy Podcast. Thank you so much. Welcome to Family Chemotherapy, where we discuss ways to cope through a pediatric cancer diagnosis. I'm your host, Adriana Lewin. Hello, and welcome to today's episode. I'm very excited to have our first guest speaker for this season with Carissa Menard. She's a certified child life specialist. And I say that funny because right before I was making sure I said her name right, and then I blinked out for a second, I was like, oh gosh, I'm going to do the (laughs) same thing I do with some of my clients where I'm like, tell me about your, um, we call safe space. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, with all the people I do EMDR with, and I talk about their safe space, it's sometimes I'm like, yours is, <laughs> it's called this. So, but um, <laughs> thank you so much, Carissa, for joining me today. I am so stoked to get to know you, to have the audience get to know you and just um, share a little bit about yourself. So I'm going to ask you, um, from the get-go, like, just tell me a little bit about yourself, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you came to become connected to the childhood cancer community. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's such an honor to be here to speak with you. And, um, I came to know and be a part of the, um, childhood cancer survivor community. Um, thankfully through, um, my experience as a teenager. So I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia when I was 13. And um, my treatment was about two and a half years long. So I finished when I was about 15 and a half. Um, and so was entered into the whirlwind hell of cancer. <laughs> and yeah. um, and what's interesting about my experience is I knew in my soul that I had cancer before I was even diagnosed. I was so sick for a while leading up to it. And I was 13. So I was very aware of what cancer was aware of my body at that point too, and knew deep down that something was seriously wrong. Um, and so the, the confirmation of that was extremely difficult. Um, but some like beautiful blessings that have come from that whole experience is that when you're going through pediatric, you know, cancer, most likely de- depending on which hospital you're at. So sorry, one second. <laughs> <laughs> Happen. <laughs> so 
sorry about that. My dog got a little excited about my cancer journey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So during my treatment, I was connected to a certified um, child life specialist. So that's actually how I came to know of the field of child life. And most children and teens, when they are um, diagnosed, they are connected with a child life specialist. Um, the only time that you're not is usually in like an adult setting hospital or like a rural mm-hmm. kind of more community uh, hospital, but most are. Thankfully, I was. My hospital had a lot of services in place. Um, and I actually had two specialists that worked with me. And I just came to fall in love with the field. It was the only thing that brought me joy in the hospital. I was terrified of everything that had to do with my cancer treatment. Every piece and part of it brought up so much anxiety for me and um, so much fear. And um, the only thing that really brought me joy when I was hospitalized throughout my treatment for those two and a half years was when my my child life specialist would walk in the room and bring like a new activity or sit down and just talk to me or prepare me for something new that that was going to be happening. And I just really felt like I had them as a strong advocate to support me and guide me through that whole experience. So because of that, it was my passion. I decided at at 13 that I too was going to be a certified um, child life specialist. And um, after I graduated from high school, I got my bachelor's in psychology and my minor in child development, and then went on to get my master's degree in child life. Um, So I I kind of like decided my destiny from the age of 13, going through cancer treatment of what I wanted my goal and purpose to be. And that that was to serve other kids and teens going through difficult medical experiences, not just cancer, but whatever type of medical experience or grief that they might be going through. Um, And since then I've worked at a children's hospital in San Diego called uh, Rady Children's Hospital. Um, I was there for a little over five years working on the rehab unit, um, supporting kids through traumatic brain injuries and spinal cord injuries, um, and have since moved on to work at a pediatric chiropractor office now. And I also provide child life services virtually through a remote um, community organization. So my field has grown to kind of be outside of the hospital setting now. And I've kind of yeah. hopped onto that train as well. And um, and then kind of more recently, I've been really trying to utilize my knowledge and experience of being a um, child life specialist and children's coach and coping support um, professional to teach kids breath work. So that's kind of where I'm at now as well as being able to utilize my skills to teach kids how to use their breath to calm themselves no matter what difficult thing they are going through. So um, yeah, that's kind of my my life 13 and on since cancer. And it's brought many trials, but also many beautiful experiences as well. Wow. So I want to go back just a couple of, you know, a few minutes ago, you basically mm-hmm. said, I knew I had cancer. Mm-hmm. Even at the age of 13, you, you just had this like feeling. Mm-hmm. You just knew it was cancer. Mm -hmm. What was that like when you found out you heard the words you have cancer? Um, absolutely horrible. I would say I have like six or seven like really prominent traumatic memories of those two and a half year period. And one of the most was the confirmation of me having cancer. Um the 
actual day that I found out was I was in ballet class. So I was a ballerina my entire life and mm -hmm. was somewhat after the fact, but it was a lot harder to dance during and after treatment. But before that, I was in a pre-professional ballerina um, uh, ballet company and I was in ballet class and I had some blood work done a few days beforehand. And my dad walked in mid-class and just said, hey, I need you to come outside. And it was in that exact moment, I knew he's bringing me outside to, to tell me that my that my like results came back and that I had cancer and he brought me to, to, to the parking lot and I immediately started screaming and fell on my knees. I just knew right in that moment, um, brings me to tears even still talking about it. Me but, too. Um, and yeah, I got in the car and my parents, you know, they drove me to the hospital and my mom sat with me and told me what was happening and um, was very much comforting and wanted me to know that, that I would be okay. Um, but I was terrified because my worst fear and thought had come true. Um, and the first person I met with at the hospital when we got um, checked in and fully like admitted, my parents were brought into a separate room and my child, my child life specialist came and sat with me. And she sat with me the whole time while my parents were in the meeting going over what was the plan to come. And she just sat and told me what was happening and told me what they were talking about and was very honest with me and also just sat with me to just talk about dance and talk about normal teenage girl stuff. Um, and it was really comforting to, to have someone be there with me and also prepare me for what's to come and to be honest about what my parents were talking about too in like the other room. Um, so that's kind yeah. of how I found out. And it was, it was really traumatic because, because I had this feeling that something was wrong and then it was confirmed. It's something that I've kind of carried with me throughout the rest of my life now of, do I always trust that fear in me? Because mm -hmm. sometimes it's not true. And that's mm -hmm. a great thing to have those fears not be true of, you know, the worst case scenario, but because of that confirmation of that fear when I was 13 being such a prominent memory for me, it's been really hard for me to trust my gut and know mm -hmm. what is real and what's not, you know, anymore. And so I've done a lot of um, therapeutic work through that as well. Yeah. As a parent, that's actually, you know, a conversation that I've had with a lot of other moms. It's, you know, when because of a diagnosis, there's a certain level of anxiety and we all have like, you know, our intuition feels like anxiety, right? Like I have yes. this intuition that something is going to happen or whatever. Right. And there's a certain level of anxiety with that. And it's hard to begin to decipher between anxiety and intuition because I feel the same. And it's like, people say, just trust your gut. It's like, I can't trust my gut anymore. My gut's like, you know, it's all jumbled up now because of everything that's <laughs> happened. And I'm like, I can't trust myself. Now I'm just overreacting every time. It's like, oh, I have a pain in my bone. And you're like, <gasps> you know, exactly, um, exactly. That is spot on exactly what I've been learning and dealing with, you know, ever since. <laughs> yes. So being 13, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty critical developmental stage, right? Um, when you were going through treatment, um, at what point did you become aware or did you even become aware that, um, you might've had some mental health struggles during that? Um, 
I would say pretty early on. Um, I already had anxiety as like a child, just kind of at baseline. I was more like an anxious, more worried kid before all this had happened. I had already had a lot of anxiety about sickness. Like before this too, I was always terrified of being sick. So my mom already knew that this was like the worst kid to get cancer was the kid who was terrified of being sick. Mm -hmm. Um, and so pretty early on, I was very, very anxious. Um, and also pretty early on, I witnessed the death of a lot of peers who were on the same clinical trial as myself and the same age as myself. And so, um, it was pretty clear after the first death had happened that I had grieved and, um, witnessed, you know, as a 13 year old, seeing like another 13 year old die from what I have, my parents put me in counseling, you know, pretty quickly. Um, I think that was a month or two into my treatment was when the first patient that I knew had died. Um, and so that's when I started doing some counseling because they knew this is going to be a rough couple of years. If we're already a month in and yeah. we already know someone that we've gotten close to in just this month that has, you know, passed from the, like the same thing. So thankfully they got me an incredible counselor um, that pretty much saw me bi-weekly or monthly, I would say, for almost those entire two years. So I was in counseling very regularly. Um, but I also didn't know exactly what anxiety was still and how to cope with it. So before I had seen the counselor, I would have those feelings of like my stomach just felt twisted or I just felt lightheaded or um just like hyperactive and I couldn't sit still or I'd like that, that like panicky feeling but I didn't know how to mm -hmm. identify it and verbalize it I would just go to my mom and start crying and she'd be like why are you crying and I'm like I don't know I'm just sad and I couldn't express my anxiety I couldn't put it into words and so that was really hard was not knowing where to put my anxiety and so um counseling helped me to work through that and to be able to have tools in place to help with that. But because I was still a kid, I still didn't have the ability to communicate it. So that was, I think, one of the hardest things throughout my treatment, even with counseling like in place was I had the tools to support myself, but I still didn't have the cognitive ability to really like discuss and have those like adult conversations of sharing yeah. what ideas and what it feels like and where it's coming from. And that was really hard was just not having a place to put it. Um, and so that really weighed on me throughout time too. Yeah. That's the, um, the challenging part of those early teen years, even like just teenagers in general, that's a big struggle to be able to verbalize emotions, what you're physically feeling and connect the dots, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, hey, I think I'm feeling this way because I've got this thought and I've got this going on. It's just, oh my gosh, my body just feels off. And I, I like that yeah. flooded feeling, right? Your body is just in overdrive. Your central exactly. nervous system is in overdrive. And you're like, I don't know why I feel this way. And it just feels horrible. That's all I know. Yeah. And I think what was hard too, is my my parents were scared of those feelings because they were told at the beginning of my treatment. And I was told as well that my mindset is going to determine potentially how this goes, which was a lot of pressure to put on a 13 year old that mm, yeah. I potentially could have the power to have my treatment not be successful. Um, and I don't, 
shame or, you know, feel upset towards my doctor for saying that. Um, I do think that there is some truth to the fact that our mindset can really help our body and its function. But I think I took it too literally as a teenager, as a kid, I took it too concretely because that's how my thinking is. Yeah. I'm still kind of moving into that like more abstract thought, but I was at the like, like the beginning stages of that, you know, as a 13 year old. So I took it really concretely of my brain has the power to, you know, make this work or not work. And so my parents also took it somewhat concretely as well. So they were scared of me ever feeling anxious. So whenever I did come to them with anxiety, it brought a lot of fear into them as well. And so then it was this kind of like cyclical pattern of, you know, not wanting to talk about our anxiety because we don't want it to be there because if it is there, then it could change things. And it kind of started this pattern as well. I love though, that your parents were so proactive and did put you in therapy. Like, yes, that is a hard thing for parents to do. Um, you know, obviously like I put my kid in as soon as possible, mm -hmm. <laughs> but as it goes, I'm a therapist, you know, I'm like, here you go. You'll benefit from this. Even if you don't, <laughs> you're not talking, it's fine. Um, but it's just interesting because a lot of, um, parents wait to see the signs and the symptoms that they're struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes that takes a while before people really realize like, or the kid is like behaving in a certain way and you're able to identify, Oh, here's a change. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, even as a parent now, like my, my kid had surgery several months ago. And as soon as that surgery was over, there was like these behavioral shifts that had changed. And I was like, uh-huh. Okay. I'm noticing a pattern. Um, luckily we had just gotten him back into therapy and, um, but it was, it's been one of those, like, hmm, I'm noticing these like check, check, check all these behaviors that are now linked to, to that trauma, which is linked to years of medical trauma. Right. So, um, exactly. In as a teenager, would you say, um, that there were, did you lose a lot of friends, I guess, like not to the cancer battle, but like mm -hmm. your real life, like pre-cancer diagnosis friends and that social mm -hmm. circle, did all of that change during treatment? And then how did that change after treatment? Yes. Yeah. 100%. I think it's one of the most critical periods of your life when you're building your sense of identity. And a lot of that is done through your peers. Um, and they also were all 13. They didn't know how to mm -hmm. deal with a friend that had cancer. They're very, you know, caught up in their own world of building their, their own identities too. And so, um, you know, it, it could be so easy to call my friends, you know, being selfish or like be unempathetic. And that's how it felt at the time when I was going through it. But as I've gotten older, I realized that they were 13 too. They, yep. they didn't know what to do, just like I didn't know how to cope with it either. Um, so to answer your question though, yes, I, I definitely, you know, didn't get to engage and participate in normal social activities. Like all of my friends got to my, focus was just on surviving. And especially for leukemia, those first nine months of treatment are extremely intense and it's a lot of high dose chemotherapy. So my immune system was pretty much at zero for almost the entire first year of my treatment. 
And I spent, you know, over 150 days in the hospital as well. So I couldn't really see people because I had yeah. to protect myself and protect my immune system. And then I was also hospitalized a lot. Um, so my social relationships suffered because of just lack of connection of, you know, physically being with my friends. And on top of it, my treatment was in 2005. So we didn't have technology like we do now. We didn't have FaceTime or, you know, Instagram and all those things. Um, I had, um, I think it was AOL instant message. So I would instant message (laughs) my friends. Um, I think I had just gotten my first cell phone and it was like those tiny little flip phones. So like I would text occasionally, but like you only got 200 texts a month or something. So like Mm -hmm. it was very minimal communication physically, but then also, you know, just in general, because we didn't have the technology then as well. So I really was distant from my friends from multiple aspects. Um, and afterwards, I think what was really difficult was my mindset on and my view on life had completely shifted. I mean, my identity became because it was during that critical period of building a sense of who I am. My identity became a cancer kid. I am a cancer survivor. I had cancer and my whole life was, was about cancer. And um, it was really hard for me to kind of move on from that and see myself as more than a cancer survivor, even though that carries so much incredible weight and should be recognized. I didn't see myself really much beyond that. Um, Mm -hmm. And because of that, it made it hard to identify and relate to other teens and to other people. And they were concerned about, um, you know, their hair and the boy that they kissed or homecoming dances and all those things. But I was still concerned about will my next blood draw come back and show that I relapsed? Like that was what I was thinking about all the time, you know, Mm -hmm. during high school. So my, my thought processes and my fears were so much different and were so much more weighty than the typical, you know, teen fears and anxieties and things like that. So I had a really hard time just, uh, like relating to my peers. Um, and that was kind of carried with me, you know, throughout high school and, when I went to college, I had this decision of I'm going to go to college and I'm not going to be the cancer kid. I'm not going to tell anybody that I had cancer. And I completely compartmentalized it and made it Mm -hmm. this past thing that's no longer happening. But because that carpet, that compartmentalization was so black and white, I then had to reconfront all the healing that still needed to take place during and after college, you know, a couple years in when it was very clear to me that there's still a lot of healing here that has to take place. You can't just push it aside and make it this thing that was only in the past and that I don't need to focus on anymore. Um, so it's kind of been a roller coaster of disconnection, reconnection, figuring out how to integrate this to be a part of who I am, but not all of who I am. Yeah. I mean, that's so profound, Um, not only for you as a survivor, but also for like a lot of the caregivers that they struggle with that as well. Like, I'm not just a mom to a kid who had cancer, right? Like, what does that mean for my life moving forward? How do I integrate it? Where are the areas that like, maybe we tend to hyper-focus on this identity and the strengths of this identity? Like, we did this, I'm a I'm going to curse on my own podcast, but I'm a badass, right? (laughs) Like all the things. And then when you realize like, 
well, what are, what about these other wounded parts over here? Like, what are the parts that we're not paying attention to the mm-hmm. things that are, that were subtly damaged and you didn't realize the effect because maybe it was going to take a, a while for that to like make itself obvious. And for you, um, for kids, right. That have actually gone through this. It's yeah. not only developmental milestones, but then also just life milestones, like getting married, dating, mm-hmm. having children or trying yeah. to conceive, right? Like yeah. all of these things confront that trauma. Yeah. Piece of that trauma. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's, it's still something that I'm very much dealing my husband and I have been trying to conceive for years now and it's been it's been difficult and I was told as a teenager that it would likely be something difficult but I didn't understand the gravity of what that would be like until I came to that place of wanting to conceive and wanting to grow a family and now that that that's here and that reality and truth of what he said could happen is happening it's like mm-hmm. reconfronting again all of the trauma and frustration and the grief the anger and sadness that oh like why is this still a part of my life and you know like you just feel like you can't get rid of it sometimes and mm-hmm. I think it's definitely like throughout throughout life and throughout so many milestones even for me 15 years later now it's still very much a big part of who you are and so I'm still very much learning how to make it a part of me and not all of me and to become to look back on it and have more of a sense of gratitude rather than anger, but it's hard when Mm -hmm. there's still long-term symptoms occurring, which can create a lot of anger and frustration still towards the past experience. Yes. Grief and gratitude, both coexisting. Yes, exactly. Yes. And they can coexist. It's just very difficult to, Mm -hmm find a way to do it. And I'm still very much learning that. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. Um, so what do you think helped you cope? Uh, like, was it mainly therapy that you felt like helped you cope during and after your treatment or have there been other things that have helped you cope? I think it was quite a few different things. I think therapy was huge in helping me have some coping skills in place that were specific to me and what what I was needing during my treatment and having someone listen to me and not be scared of my feelings like my parents Mm -hmm. were um that's big because you know as a therapist that that's like that works with children um at times right it's like hey parents you you've got to keep a poker face because like your kids are going to come to you with some really tough things and if a parent begins to like cry and get emotional too it makes the child like pause and be like oh i don't think this person like i need to worry about their well-being now right mm-hmm. i can't be honest and just lay it out there without you know yeah being concerned exactly. so that's really that's a really big, valuable tidbit right there that you mm-hmm. just kind of drop like, hey, they can't, it's hard to be a parent and provide that type of support in this mm-hmm. situation. Like I'm a therapist yeah. and I sit there sometimes and I'm like, like <laughs> holding back to tears, like, oh, this is too hard, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that to add to that too, what, what also happens and what I think happened for me, and I didn't realize it until, you know, almost a, a decade later 
is when I saw someone else scared of the feelings that I was having, it made me scared to also look at them and process them. Mm. And so then I never did. I just, I was too scared to look at them because it was too scary for anyone else to also look at. And so my counselor helped me for sure, but I still carried a lot with me of being really scared to ever look at those feelings because I saw all around me that it was a scary thing to to do. And so I was too scared to do it the majority of the time. So yeah, I think counseling can be incredibly helpful at just being a safe space to get out those difficult, hard, ugly, scary feelings in a place mm-hmm. where with someone that will just be a a person that will take on those feelings um, and allow you to just get them all out there without any judgment, without any concern or fear um, put on top of them. Um, I think the the other coping techniques that were really helpful for me too was my faith. I am a um, Christian and I, you know, very much relied on my faith. Even as a 13 year old, I had my whole like routine every morning of every morning I'd wake up and I would like read my Bible or read this like special proverb um, book and I would journal. And I think those two things partnered of like having a morning routine still, even though Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to school, my whole routine, my whole life had been turned upside down, but having a morning routine was really helpful. And then also partnering that with my faith was really helpful for me. Um, And then one of the like most special memories that I had that I remember was really just helpful for me and my mental health was my dad also struggles with like anxiety and he has his whole life. And so I think he was able to, to empathize with me more when I was going through treatment on kind of what I needed to feel Mm -hmm. supported. And so when I would have those moments of just feeling super anxious or really sad he would go on like a walk with me and just and I remember one time we went on like a walk at like nine o'clock at night it was like late at night and it was not a normal time to to go out on like a walk and he's like let's go on like a walk and we do just walk around and and talk about like the stars and the moon and to just feel seen and loved and literally held you know like being handheld through those feelings um those moments, I, I had a few of those nights with my dad. And I think those were really powerful as well. I love that. Like parents take note, take your <laughs> kids on a walk and hold their hand. Um, but I mean, I, you know, I've actually even looked into, um, there's a form of therapy, I guess, where it's like you're out in nature and I don't know the, the exact name of it, but basically it's people are starting to move outside of the traditional box of an office, right. And Mm -hmm. getting out with our clients to really bring them back into this space where it's like, you're still small, but still a great part of this beautiful picture, you know? Um, So I'm going to ask another question Um, what do you wish others knew about the impact of cancer on you? Mm, Um, I don't think I had realized when I was currently going through it, I was so focused on just like surviving and getting Mm -hmm. through it and coming out like the other side alive and healthy. And after everything was done 
And I think that was everybody else's goal as well. You know, obviously they mm-hmm. wanted to, you know, make it through and to survive. And they were very much there for me during, but it was after it was all done. It's just kind of like a lot of that, that support just goes away. And I had come to become really close with many other, you know, teens with cancer throughout my treatment mm-hmm. and the majority of them relapsed. And so they were all still going through treatment when I was finished. One of my closest friends, she ended up dying the, two, the, the month before I finished my treatment. And so I was still very much going through grief and loss and Um, the anxiety of, you know, all my friends now, because I had gotten so close with people through the cancer community that were also going through it. And so there was still so much going on beyond just surviving and getting through it after Mm -hmm. everything was done. Um, And I just wish that I had some more support in place after the fact. Uh, I think I definitely needed all of the support during, um, but I think I needed a lot of it afterwards as well. And I also as a teenager, because at that time I was 15 and a half now, really was able to see the impact of what I had gone through had taken like a toll on like my family. And so that also was an incredible weight to carry as a teenager yeah. to see oh, this what this horrible thing that I had has now caused my family um, on my parents and just, you know, physically and emotionally and mentally on them. And I have a a, um, younger sister as well. And kind of like what, like you were sharing, she was able to just push forward and cope during those two years, those two and a half years. But right after I finished treatment, she completely fell apart and really, really struggled emotionally and mentally and in school and all those things. And it was confusing to my parents and to her and to me because it, showed how much of an impact these two and a half years have had on all of us. Um, And so I just, I wish that I had someone that I could have like reflected with afterwards for many months after and someone that could have um, just helped me to know how to support my family and to not feel guilty for what had happened um, to feel like I was a burden to my family, financially, mentally, emotionally, all those things that cancer brings onto a family. Um, and as a teenager, you see that and you understand what's happening and it's hard to know that you want to survive, but what you're going through is causing so much turmoil to your family. Um, and as a kid, you may not necessarily fully grasp that, but as a teenager, I did. And that was really hard. Um, and so I think just knowing that, that it's, it's so much more than just surviving. There's yeah. whole family dynamics that are shifting and changing and huge perspective life shifts that are happening as a teenager and social dynamics changing and grief, a lot of grief happening. A I think, lot of grief. I think a lot of people don't realize that when you come out of cancer and you survive that there's just so much joy, but there's so much joy and so much grief because you've mm-hmm. witnessed the death and loss of so many fellow cancer, you know, patients as well and people that you've become close to and loved. And I don't think pe- people realize how much grief comes with the joy of surviving. Yeah. And guilt. I hear yeah. a lot. 
a lot of guilt and like what I'm hearing you talk about is like not only the grief of the shift in the dynamics in your home and feeling the weight of the responsibility. So the guilt, you talked about that. I hope that's one of your negative cognitions that you've worked on (laughs) in EMDR. Um, But even just how do you experience joy when you've lost so many friends? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The same thing that survivor's guilt and um, there's just a lot of grief, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. A lot of grief, not just for the people that you've lost, but yeah, those parts of your life that have been lost as well. Those friendships, who you used Mm -hmm. to be, all those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's not always talked about or recognized once treatment is done. Um, Finding who you are, like that sense of identity of, okay, yeah, I went through this really bad thing, but what parts of me are still there that were there before cancer and what parts of me are new and will stay and which ones do I want to like prune, <laughs> prune off, right? Like how, how do I get rid of these? Um, mm-hmm. Some of the stuff that I pick up along the way. Yes, um, definitely. So how is your mental health now? So I'm a crier. I am doing much better, but I'm a crier. As you know, I'm just like an emotional person. I'm like a super empathetic person. So I just, whenever I talk about anything that brings up big emotions, especially for me, that's talking about my cancer journey, it still makes me cry even 15 years later. Like I just celebrated my 15 years cancer free on December 15th of this last year. So just congratulations. Um, and yeah, I mean, even 15 years later, I I still cry talking about it. And um, it's not so much that I'm crying because I'm still struggling a lot with it. It's just the reality of that was really hard and that was really sad and that was awful. And because of that, it's okay to cry about it, even 15 years later. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've been able to get to a place of feeling okay about that for a long time, especially during my college years. I just didn't want to experience any of the things associated with cancer, the grief, the sadness, the anger. I just wanted it to be in my past. And I didn't allow myself to look back on it and feel safe and okay to cry about it and just talk about it as a normal, hard experience with people. So I had to do a lot of therapy, a lot of EMDR, a lot of CBT, um, a lot of family work as well to come to a place of just feeling okay to to talk about it. And so thankfully, I definitely am there now. Um, So I'm very grateful that I feel okay being able to talk about it now very openly and with emotion and do it with emotion unashamedly as well. Um, I think like I was sharing as well, I definitely do still struggle with some long-term side effects. And so that, you know, definitely weighs on me sometimes mentally of, you know, some like neuropathy and pain issues, um, some uh, like fertility issues now and mm-hmm. um, like some eyesight stuff that I've been like, you know, dealing with like for many years now. And so that is frustrating and I still do have like therapy appointments, you know, every once in a while where I notice myself really struggling or getting really anxious and hyper-focused on my body um, and getting fearful of something bad happening 
like to me again and Mm -hmm. needing therapy to work through those feelings. I definitely still need that. Um, I think one of the biggest mental health hurdles that I've had to, to go through in the last decade is lack of trust with my body, not trusting my body anymore, not trusting that it's good and that it's functioning well. I just, I'm always worried that it's going to turn on me and like betray me again. And so that's still something that I think I am still working through, but I've done a lot of work on that. And it's definitely much better than it was, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, And I don't know if that will ever go away. And so also just coming to a a place of, of acceptance that my anxiety is a part of who I am because of my cancer, just like my cancer is a part of who I am, but it's not all of me and learning to accept those parts of me and very compassionate to those parts of me too. So if you could go back as this version of yourself and go back to that 13 year old girl who was going through cancer, what would you tell that younger version of you? Oh gosh. I actually, I had this asked of me in therapy during an EMDR session as well. And I got, Oh my goodness. (laughs) I must be an EMDR therapist. Right. (laughs) Um, and at the time I actually, I couldn't answer the question. I still, and this was a few years ago when that was asked of me and I didn't really know what to say because I was still so scared of approaching that terrified young teenage girl that had no idea what kind of hell she was about to go through. Mm -hmm. Um, but now I feel like I can look at her and just let her know that it's going to be okay. And I know that sounds really cliche and silly and broad, but there's many moments throughout treatment and after treatment where I didn't know if I was going to be okay, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally and career wise and relationship wise. Like I just didn't know, like, how is my life going to pan out? What is tomorrow going to bring? And just trusting that God's got his hand on tomorrow. It's going to be okay. I may not know what's what's going to happen. I may not be in the best, you know, like state of mind, but I'm loved through it. I have a family who loves and cares about me and I have plans in place to support me through it. And no matter what, no matter what grief, fear, anxiety, or anger happens, you're loved and you're seen and you're going to be okay. That's really beautiful and profound. I'm so glad that you were able to answer that question after being able to reflect on it for two years. (laughs) (laughs) Oh Um, man, so much reflection the last 15 years, man. (laughs) So I'm going to wrap it up with this final question. Um, What words of wisdom would you be able to provide to others, either parents or um, children currently going through it or even adults? childhood cancer survivors, what words of wisdom would you like to provide? Yeah, I think a big one for me that has been a passion of mine also since becoming a certified um, child life specialist is don't forget about the the brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. My sister also went through hell during that experience. And um, my whole family was in survival mode. And so was she. And I 
my, I think my chalet specialist had met with her maybe once or twice, but not very much. And she needed just as much support as I did. She was also a terrified kid. She was probably terrified of it also happening to, you know, to her as well. And all of the kids are going through that. And I think a huge thing too, is to invite the siblings into being a part of the experience. I think so many parents want to shelter their siblings and Mm -hmm. have them stay with grandma, push them into all these different corners away from the experience as far as possible, because they don't want them to go through it. But the reality is they are, they're going through it too. And they need to be invited in so that they can have some choice in what they want to be a part of and can feel important enough to be invited into such a difficult experience as well. So that's a big one for me is the siblings. I deeply love and care about my sister and wish that I could have been more aware of it too, but you know, I was 13 and going through hell as well. And I'm going to just piggyback on that one because I like, I did bring in one, my kid, one of them was like, Hey, do you want to come? Right. And he's like, okay. Cause he, at that point he's like, what's clinic, what happens there? Um, so invite them into the process, but also realize that they need a place also to, to have space and grace to process what they experience because it's traumatic for them too. And, um, I, drop the ball on this you know i'm like okay come come to clinic and he was there saw his brother getting his port accessed and the screaming and you know just the whole shebang he got the full works and he wanted to go home later that evening because we had a hospital admission that day and there were some behavioral challenges at home that evening and i was like oh my gosh i forgot to like (laughs) let him process this and give up, you know, like I just didn't prepare for the other side. Ah, you know, like all the things that I didn't think about. So, but, um, so be, if you do invite kids anticipate that there were, there may be some behavioral challenges with that child later on that evening or the days that follow as they try to make sense and grapple with what it was that they just witnessed. So, yes. Um, exactly. And a huge part of being a um, child life specialist is not only processing after, but preparing beforehand. So preparing the, the child to know what they're going to see, what they're going to be experiencing, yes. what kind of sensations they'll be seeing and witnessing yes. before and having that space to process after. And if parents don't know how to do that, it's okay to ask for help. So having a you know person at the hospital help to prepare them before walking in as well can be super helpful. So that's what I would say is the siblings are extremely important too. So, <laughs> so if you work in the hospital staff and you see someone bring in a sibling, make sure you've asked them, have they been here before? Yes. Have they processed? Have they had yes. a child life specialist help you guys understand what's to, to come? Mm-hmm. Um, because parents aren't going to know to, to advocate for that. Right. That's, that's mm-hmm. really going to fall heavily on the hospital staff. Who's like, Oh, hi, sibling is here. Exactly. So, yes. <laughs> but um, I really, really, truly appreciate getting to know you, getting to know your story, for you being so vulnerable and candid about just your journey, your mental health journey through recovering and, you know, having been through childhood cancer. So um, what are the ways that people can get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out to you personally? Yeah. Um, so I have a children's breathwork um, account on Instagram. It's called 
abc.breathworkforkids. So um, you're always welcome to message me on there. Um, and I also work for a remote child life um, company called Hearts Connected. And you're also welcome to contact me there as well. Um, and my my email there is carissa at heartsconnected.org. Um, so I'm here to talk to you as a professional to provide you know guidance and um, support, but also here to just listen and to just answer any questions that you have, you know, personally as well. So, well, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode and you guys have, I will make sure and post all that information in the links, uh, below on this podcast. So, um, thank you so much, Carissa, and I can't wait to see what you continue to do in this childhood cancer community. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. If you have found this podcast helpful or you just love the mission for family chemotherapy, please kindly rate this podcast. Also, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest for additional resources that I do share daily. Please tag and share your friends and other pediatric cancer families that you think would benefit from any of the content from family chemotherapy. Thank you, and I can't wait to share the next episode. Together, we can help heal the whole family.